Stevens Road Baptist Church podcast. Here you'll find our weekly teaching and more as we try to equip you to live out your faith everywhere and always. So, have you ever jumped on a, uh, a bandwagon? And by that I mean, have you, have you ever just got swept up in the excitement of... Uh, of something that was going around you. Let me, let me give you an example. In 2015 and 2016, I suddenly became a baseball fan. It's when the Jays were making their run. And I loved those seasons. I had barely paid attention the years before. And truth be told, I watched briefly at the beginning of the season this year and tapped out when I knew that it just, wasn't going to, it just wasn't going to be the ride that it had been before. I was done. But in 2015, 2016, I watched every highlight. I listened to every clip. I loved it. And it's a funny term. And as it turns out, it, it comes from the phrase, uh, or it comes from the circus. It comes from P.T. Barnum. He would literally drive bandwagons through towns to announce that his circus was there. It was a way to alert people and to potentially bring people to the circus. What made me laugh is that I read a little bit more about this, that uh, people began to take notice. In particular, the, the world of politics noticed that bandwagons were successful in bringing people to rallies. It is believed that um, Dan Rice, a famous clown, was the first to rent out his bandwagon to a local politician to, uh, to bring to a political campaign. And it was successful. As these bandwagons drove through the towns, people clamored for them, jumped on, and, and went to the rallies. And the term became negative because in the world of politics, in the 1890s, warnings began to go out. Don't jump on my opponent's bandwagon in haste, and then they would explain why. They really meant it. They meant don't go on their bandwagon to their rally. It had negative connotations. You know, this passage that we just read about Jesus sounds fairly harsh. And I want to put a little bit of context on it before we begin to move on. First, you should note that this comes actually fairly late into Jesus' ministry. And he is well on his way to Jerusalem right now. He uh, has many followers. And, and a crowd has been following him and drawing on him. Advance that just a touch. Well, maybe one more. Yeah, there we are. So he, uh, he has a crowd. And people are following him. And they want to be on the winning team. I mean, they see what Jesus has done. They hear what Jesus has said. And there is an incredible excitement in the air. And they suspect that he is about to go to Jerusalem. And he is going to go all the way. And he is going to uh, become a, a great political leader. Out with Herod. Out with the Romans. Out with these harsh temple taxes. The community, as they knew it, was going to be remade. Jesus takes the crowd aside, as much as you can take a crowd aside, he addresses a crowd and explains that if they really want to follow him, if they really want 
to come along where he is going, that they are going to need to have their expectations radically changed. They're going to need to know exactly what they're in for. And so, he explains it to them. We have all been soft-souled things before. Told something is not really that big of a deal and it's not really that hard, but if, if you wouldn't mind helping out, it's, it's really just a, just a pittance, a trifle, really. I remember once being offered or, or asked to help out with, uh, with junior church when I was, oh, I don't know, 17 or 18 at, my, uh, at the church that I grew up in. And it was somewhat shrugged off. Just, just help out a little bit. And I, and I agreed only to discover that there was nobody else helping out. <laughs> that there was no material bought. That there was no one else doing it. That I, who I thought I was volunteering to help out every couple of weeks, maybe, was volunteering to be the person to run it. There was, for Jesus here, no bait and switch. He knew that people were following him because he was engaging, because they had expectations. But Jesus wanted to lay out, what is it going to mean if you really are going to follow me everywhere and always? So let's unpack these a little bit. You want to advance the slide. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. You know, I love, I love cell phones. I love the modern cell, smartphone. I really do. I, it, it has legitimately made my life easier. I, I don't have to carry as much stuff around. I, I am a forgetful person by nature, so I, I have my calendar. I can set reminders. It's just, it's, it's great. There are downsides. And one of, the, one of them is, I feel bad that as more and more people are switching away from landlines, as more and more people are, are going to, to cell phone only, that there are, there are people in this world that are, are going to miss that satisfying feeling of just slamming the phone down in anger at someone. I mean, they're expensive, right? I mean, it's not like you can, you can, you can slam. It's not like you can toss them across the room the way you might with a $15 cordless phone. Not that I've ever done that. But you just can't do it anymore. One of the things that seems to still be, uh, still seems to be happening is, is we all still get to stomp up the stairs and slam doors when we're angry. Or I should say, that still seems to happen in, in my house. Josh, you want to go one forward? Arielle and I got into an argument a couple of weeks back, and it was probably about dinner because it is almost always about dinner. And... And that resulted to her needing to go to her room for a bit. And we, we live in a split entry, which means that from one room to another, there was always at least a half a flight of stairs between you and where you need to go. And she got the full, full three sets of half stairs to, to go. And every step, stomp, 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 all the way up to her room. And then what surprised me was the force that she slammed her door on me. And I said, oh... I thought I had a solid five or six more years before, or that was how our arguments were going to conclude. And part of me was annoyed, and part of me found myself laughing because it reminded me of, of what my sister used to do when she got into arguments 
with, with my parents. Except the house that I grew up on, the foundation had shifted a little bit, and that affected her doorframe more than anything. So it meant her door never fully closed. And no matter how hard that she could swing that door, the most that she could ever get out of it was kind of the sound you would hear of a diving board coming off, like a, like a thud, 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 thud. The best part about it, when she was really, really mad with my mom, she would try her darndest and slam it multiple times only to ever get the muffled thud. So hard not to laugh. Now, from that muffled thud, it wouldn't be unusual to hear proclamations of, I hate you, or I'm angry with you, or you don't understand me. I mean, I think, I think there's a moment where, where most parents and most children have that kind of intense back and forth. Not universal. And most of the time, they don't really mean it. They mean in the moment that they are furious. And they might say, I hate you. But they don't really mean it. And we're in a similar zone here with Jesus' teachings. So despite Ariella's excellent eye rolls that she'll toss my way, or the things my sister would yell at my parents, even though we were in a deep argument, no one really hated anyone. They were just having tense moments. And so Jesus doesn't need us to well up intense negative emotions directed towards those who are most familiar with us. Instead, he needs us to make sure we understand that he is asking us to make him our top priority, even if our other priorities conflict. That is really where the rubber hits the road. And maybe you are more familiar with this uh, far less shocking saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your minds. I mean, we all have multiple loves in our lives. We do. We have hobbies and friends and family and work and Jesus and God, and you can name it and name it and name it. We all have multiple things that we would point to and honestly say, I love that. Maybe it's painting. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's that feeling of kicking up your feet at the end of a day. There are things that we can all say that we love it. The question is, what do we do when these loves conflict one another? Because we sometimes imagine the thing that's going to trip us up in our Christian lives are those things that are radically and obviously bad. And they might but they're hardly the only concern that we have. And in fact, as we grow in maturity, they are less and less likely the thing that's going to throw us off. And what's more likely the problem is that our loves are going to conflict. All of these multiple things, which on their own we can look at and call good, can come into conflict with one another. Now, the people in this first century, when Jesus was saying that, that you are going to need to hate your families, he said earlier that, that he really was going to be a dividing force among families. That some people in the family would follow him and some people wouldn't. That was going to cause conflict. But we don't need to go back 
to the first century, to those first followers of Jesus, to find conflict within family. And again, maybe that's you. Maybe you are that one or two. Maybe you're that one piece of your family that is actively choosing to follow Christ, but there is another segment of your family that is not. And you will constantly be navigating how do you live out your faith to Christ in proximity to people who are not interested or potentially even hostile to faith in Christ. It gets tricky. And this is why Jesus says that if you are going to follow after me, I have to be your number one priority even above family. That if your family are going to be outright hostile to your faith in me, well... It means your faith in me still needs to come first. How do you honor your parents? How do you love your children while also loving God with everything that you have? It's the question that Jesus was putting out there. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Would you not first sit down and estimate the cost? The other day I was listening to a news story and it popped up about, uh, about the Muskrat Falls uh, project. Most recent estimates of the project are going to put it at about $13 billion to complete, and it'll hopefully be generating power in 2019. In 2010, when it was first announced, it was going to cost somewhere in the avenue of $5 billion, and no one really knew when it was going to generate power. The CTV News article that I read gave a, a, this grim update. First power is expected in 2019, Estimated cost of 23.3 cents per kilowatt before tax. That's up 8.2 cents. It'll functionally double the rates payers are, or consumers are paying now. Percentage-wise, this isn't the worst bad estimation that we have going for us in Canada. The worst bad estimation was how much we thought the long gun registry would cost. It was supposed to cost $2 million dollars. In the end, it cost $1 billion. It doesn't matter what you think about the merits of these projects. You might love them. You might hate them. You might think that they have great benefit to bring or that it doesn't matter what they were going to cost, that they were the dumbest thing anyone had ever thought of. It doesn't matter whether you think the final price tag, despite the bad estimate, is worth it or if the original price tag was too much to begin with. The inescapable truth is, oh my goodness, someone in an accounting firm needs to be fired because they counted the cost really, really wrong. Jesus is telling us about counting the cost. And I don't want you to get too hung up on, uh, on each image that Jesus shows in, in these quick parables. See, the question isn't who does the king represent or what could the tower symbolize or uh, the overarching point is don't start projects. Don't wage war unless you know you have the resources to win or the resources to complete it. My favorite example is there's an old uh, textile factory just outside of Windsor. It's a building that was going to become condos. For a brief period of time, it had some beautiful windows in it. Those windows are mostly broken if you've driven by it recently, and the opening soon flag is gone. Someone didn't count the cost. The money ran out before the project was finished. And here we have a monument to poor accounting. 
Are you committed to following Jesus wherever he goes and whatever he asks you to do? Or are we only interested in following him so long as it is convenient and easy? I want to suggest that often our attempts to reach out to people that we have accidentally soft-souled what it means to follow Jesus. Because Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. That's not often the way we say it. I pulled this example off of Lifeway's website. And if you don't know who Lifeway is, they are a, a large publishing arm of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. You almost certainly have books on your shelf if you buy anything of faith and practice from Lifeway. They are one of the biggest Christian publishers in North America. This is how they would, or one of the ways that they frame how to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is easy as ABC. It's the most important decision you can ever make, how to become Christian. A, admit. Admit, that you're, admit to God that you're a sinner. Give some passages. Repent and turn away from sin. B, believe. Believe that Jesus is God's son and accept God's forgiveness from sin. C, confess. Confess your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. A, B, C, done. Now let me be clear. Nothing said here is wrong. Everything there is absolutely 100% true. It's, it's just that it is presented so lightly, so simply. It's what left out is more to the point. See, we've, we've shifted two categories apart. The category of discipleship away from evangelism. That the goal is just to get them in the door and then we'll worry about maturing them later. See, when Jesus was asking for commitment, his commitment was up front. Take up your cross and follow me. One of the ways maybe it is easier to think of, because again, you are not likely to be physically carrying crosses in your lifetime, is that the New Testament writers began explaining what faithful living in Christ was going to look like. They came up with about a hundred different commands. There are one another verses. These are the things that we are supposed to do for one another in Christ. And I'm just going to read you them in rapid succession. Some of these are covered in multiple passages. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind of one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another before the Lord's Supper. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently, Tolerate one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess sins to one another. Love one another. Though through love serve one another. Tolerate one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Be devoted to one another in love. Give preference to one another in honor. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Don't be haughty. Be of the same mind. Be subject to one another. Close yourselves in humility towards one another. Don't judge one another and don't put a stumbling block in a, in a, in a believer's path. Greet each other with a kiss. Husbands and wives, don't deprive one another of intimacy. Bear with one another's burdens. Speak truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Uh, comfort one another. Encourage and build up one another. 
Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. You can look it up. The one another verses. Be an excellent afternoon well spent. This, is, this isn't even it. There are more commands and more things that Jesus asked us to do. This is just the inward focusing bit, the bit that we are supposed to relate with one another. This isn't even talking about how do we handle wealth, whether we have some of it or, or none of it. This isn't even talking about how do we connect with people around us that don't share our same faith. This isn't, this isn't even the instructions on how do we engage with a, with a hostile government or how do we engage with a, with a friendly government. And, and that's all in there too. The point is, or the takeaway from that is, is that it's all hard. On my best day, I would absolutely aspire to all of that. But I don't think I've ever achieved it. I mean, even just pulling out being hospitable to one another. I love having people over. Then I love when they leave. (laughs) Praying for one another. How many of us, how many of us in earnest have had someone share an item with you and you'd said, I will pray for you, for your day to go on and for that concern to simply wash away from your memory. I'm not here to make you feel guilty about that. That is, of course, what happens. These are our struggles because they are hard. It was never meant to be easy. And that is the, the challenge when we present following after Christ as if it was easy and if it was natural. Because what we are really asking us to do is to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and give the totality of our lives over to Christ. He ends with this verse, if salt, or this saying, if salt is good, but it loses its saltiness, how can it may be made salty again? Jesus ends with that. You know, pure sodium chloride will not lose its saltiness. It's, I mean, it just is what it is. But impure salt harvested from mines and marshes, the, the salt that, that would most likely be available to the first century, uh, uh, to the first century Israel, could be dissolved. If, if water washed into these spaces, the, the salt can melt or dissolve in water and and be washed downstream. And you could be left with an impure substance that looks strikingly like salt, but has none of its benefits. It, It won't increase the flavor of food. It won't act as a preservation agent. But it looks like salt. And it could be used with the thought that it was salt, only for it to be completely and utterly worthless. See, Jesus was turning to the crowd and said, many of you may look like you're following me, but you really only look that way. That the the salt isn't really in your lives, that they're on the bandwagon. Jesus was calling for a choice. He didn't tell people to leave. He just told them what they were in for and asked them to continue to follow him. It's easy to look like you're following Jesus. It's much, much harder to actually follow Jesus. May we never just look as if we're following him. 
for listening to the Stevens Road Baptist Church podcast. I hope what you listened to was helpful. If you enjoyed it, consider liking, subscribing, or sharing this podcast. You can find us on Facebook, or if you are in the Dartmouth, Nova Scotia area, we would love to see you some Sunday. Again, thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.